This podcast is made possible by Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. So, Eric, on the show, most of the time we've talked to people in ETFs, advisors around ETFs. We're going to shake it up a little bit today. Yeah, we're going to talk to somebody who is uh, somewhat of a legend from the mutual fund industry and somebody who's got a new venture. And it's related to something, a word that comes up probably on every single episode. Can you guess what that word is? Active? <laughs> Close. Passive? Fee. Fee. All right. Yes. I think all three That's of those come one. up a lot. Yeah, yeah you're right. Totally. His name's Peter Krauss. He's starting a venture called Aperture Investors. He's formerly of Goldman Sachs. And most recently, he was the CEO of Alliance Bernstein, or AB. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a major league person here who knows the mutual fund industry. He's very well aware of the uh, rise of passive and the cost obsession going on now in the industry. And so he has a solution for the mutual fund side. So this is a little bit about can they get it back together? Can they uh, stop this sort of migration over to low-cost passive? And we'll try to break it down to how this would practically work for an investor as well. We're also joined by Shanali Bazik, who covers finance or finance, depending on how you want to say it, for Bloomberg News. This time on Trillions, the man who hates ETFs. Okay, so Peter, you're, you've been called the man who hates ETFs. Why do you hate ETFs so much? Well, I, I didn't really say I hated ETFs. Okay. The, t- uh, New, the New York the Times, New York Times says said I hated ETFs. Hate ETFs. They're trying to get clicks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think ETFs are a useful vehicle. But in all things in the securities market, there's a lot more than what there appears on the front cover. ETFs are actually a rather sophisticated security. They are actually derivatives. They aren't really uh, just a package of individual stocks or bonds. They're actually a set of promises to buy and sell those securities or hold those securities over time. There are major participants in the marketplace that support that. Some of the ETFs are quite liquid. Some of the ETFs are not very liquid. Some ETFs have trillions of dollars attached to them, and some ETFs have tens of billions of dollars attached to them. And there's thousands of ETFs. If that. (laughs) If that, exactly. My concern with ETFs at the time and still is that investors don't really understand their construct and they don't really understand the potential risks. The ETF itself, the liquidity ETF itself, relies on market participants who actually trade them. But the market participants get paid by having a spread between what they buy it at and what they sell it at. If that spread collapses or that spread's not available or the market participant somehow feels that they need a bigger spread – Well, the investor is subject to that cost. And we've actually had some experience in the market about three years ago in August when the SPX or the the, uh, Standard & Poor's ETF separated from the cash market for about 30 minutes by a significant amount, something that people did not think was going to happen. Having been in the markets for a long time, probably now going on 40 years, uh, things like that just don't happen out of thin air. They actually have a rationale. There's actually a reason for that. 
And it's hard to fix because at the end of the day, uh, it again relies, that liquidity relies on market participants, meaning institutional participants, actually having confidence to trade those markets at that point in time in a very tight bid-ask spread. If that spread extends or goes away or gets larger, the cost becomes very significant. I don't think investors actually understand that risk. Now, for the highly liquid large-cap equity markets, that risk is less, and it's actually reasonably modest. But for bond markets, it's actually quite significant. And there's lots and lots of money that follow high-yield ETFs, for example. And the high-yield ETFs tracking error, which is a measure of the cost of that bid-ask spread, is actually quite large. It's sometimes 70, 80 basis points, almost one percentage point. Well, you wouldn't give up one percentage point. That's a lot of money in a you know, yield environment of, call it, 5% for a high-yield security. That's 20% of the yield. So I think investors need to understand that better. And my whole point was understand the ETF better, understand the risks of the ETF better. Which is a big part of the show. And I can literally, I can feel Eric wanting to pounce right now. <laughs> so let's just let him ask a question. Well, what you're saying about the reliance on the middlemen is true. Uh, you are relying on a lot of these people connected to the system, market makers to make markets. If they don't have all the inputs from the stocks and bonds like that day on August 24th where some of the stocks were halted, they widen their spreads, and that's what caused the dislocation in the ETF. Now, since then, they've tried to make it so the ETF and the stocks are not going to have uh, different halting times. So I think the ETFs are just downstream sometimes from like a rule in the exchange or the plumbing, as I call it. So that has, like in when Brexit happened, that did not happen. However, it is true. You have to trade the ETF. In the high-yield case, I think that most of the money in high yield still goes for mutual funds because active mutual funds, that's where they, they really kick butt in the high yield area or bonds in general. I think 80% beat HYG. So the high yield ETF, I think, is more used as like quick beta for traders. Maybe there's some long-term money. But for the most part, I think investors have figured out that you can do better going active in a mutual fund. Um, but uh, So just two caveats on that, but I think both points are very valid. Something interesting, um, you know, in your own research at Aperture, you've been in the mutual fund industry for so long, but you still see something wrong with the mutual fund industry. You've said there are too many of them. Can you explain your thinking here? And, and what's the idea with Aperture? What's the, what's your, where did this big idea come from? Sure. So um, I have been operating in the mutual fund industry for a very long time. And uh, of course, any portfolio manager in the mutual fund industry, any portfolio manager in the industry will say that their objective is to actually perform. That's what they would say every day. The problem is the incentive structure is actually not set up that way. The incentive structure is you're paid based on your asset levels, not based on your performance. And that's a fundamental disconnect. And over many years, 30, 40 years, it led to companies being focused on the growth of their assets. I have to, before you go any farther, I want to ask, if you said this at any of your prior jobs, would the tables been flipped over? <laughs> <laughs> I did say this at many of my prior jobs. <laughs> did the tables get flipped over? <laughs> In many cases, they did, yeah. Uh, no, I have been saying this for really, literally the past three years. Um, and I think what happened is, is that we got to a tipping point, which was some time before this, where uh, the size of assets under management was so large it became difficult to perform. And I, I spent a lot of time investigating long-term performance of managers, of different types of managers, concentrated managers, diversified managers, managers in large cap, managers in small cap, managers outside the United States, 
And unfortunately, the data that's available, which is you know publicly available to anybody, really proves the point that there's no easy way to identify a manager that will persistently perform. And on average, managers do not perform in excess of their fees. And that's a really troubling problem. And of course, the investor in the world has figured that out. And in fact, they've moved their money from you know, mutual fund assets and active management to ETFs and passive. And I actually think we need ETFs and passive because my basic hypothesis is there's too much money being managed actively to actually perform. So can you explain your fee structure then? What does the future look like when so many people are going to zero? So if you take the prospect that I'm assuming I'm right for the minute, that there's too much money being managed actively, you need to change the incentive structure. Because if you don't change the incentive structure, then people will just keep managing the assets because they're paid to manage the assets and they're paid to gather the assets. But if you go back to basic principles, which is why is the PM there? And by PM, you mean portfolio manager? Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, the portfolio manager exists because they want to perform. And if you ask a portfolio manager that, that is what they would say. I'm here to create performance for my clients. Well, if that's the basic concept, guess what? Let's pay you based on that concept. If you don't perform, you don't get paid. If you do perform, you do get paid. Seems like a fair deal. There's a cap to how much you can get paid still. There is a cap in the U.S. Uh, under the 40 Act rules. There, uh, the, the SEC uh, view is that we should have performance-linked fees, and those performance-linked fees include a fulcrum structure, which creates a cap. But the cap is reasonable. And so if managers hit that cap, there's still possible outperformance over the cap. And the manager's performance uh, fee then is just declines by the certain pro rata amount by which the actual excess return exceeds the cap. Just a question on this. Performance fees, this has been something we've been hearing a lot about. And on Twitter, where a lot of – I call it the gladiator pit of uh, debate with ideas, uh, a lot of uh, people will push back on performance fees and say, well, the problem with them is it, it inspires really outrageous bets, reckless behavior because now you're really uh, looking to get as much money as possible and couldn't that really turn out bad for the investor? Right. So that's a very good point. And so you need an ecosystem in which the performance fee exists. So there's both a structure for the performance fee. So point one is our proposition is that there's too much money being managed actively. And the reason why there's too much money is there's too many managers who are paid based on the amount of assets they have rather than the performance. If they were paid on performance, given their historical performance, they wouldn't exist. And therefore, it'd be less managers and less capacity. More money would be in passive. But the managers that did exist would perform and produce performance for clients. So, That's so you're saying one. there's a dinosaur die-off that needs to happen. There is a dinosaur die-off. And people have asked me many, many times, wouldn't that happen by consolidation? And I've said to people, you know, in consolidation in the manufacturing business, for example, generally leads to more efficiencies. Consolidation in the asset management business, however, is the opposite. When one firm buys another – they don't expect the portfolio managers in the acquired firm to go out of business. They actually expect the portfolio managers to grow. So there's no reduction in the capacity. In fact, there's, a, there's an expectation that it will grow. So consolidation is not the answer. The only answer I've said sort of uh, 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 with gallows humor is death. You know, then the portfolio manager out of business. But another answer would be to change the revenue 
structure. And if you change the revenue structure, then those managers who can't perform will be out of business and they won't carry any money. So point, that's point one. Point two, to go back to Eric's point, if I, if I may, longer answer, sorry. Point two is, all right, how do we deal with, uh, if you pay people on performance, how do we deal with risk-taking? Because uh, on the one hand, people say, well, I don't like the fact that I pay you a fee to try to perform, and you get it whether you do or you don't. I don't like that. But I also don't want to pay you a performance fee because I'm worried you'll take too much risk. Now, look, you sort of can't have your cake and eat it too. But just for the moment, let's assume that that's the position we're in. So what we've said at Aperture is, look, that's a fair point. So number one, uh, in the 40 Act vehicles, the fees are capped. And so excessive risk-taking that is attempting to produce a return in excess of the cap doesn't actually pay the manager. So they really don't have any real reason to do that. But the way we set up the compensation structure is quite interesting. So we've said to managers, look, we're going to pay you on performance, but half of your compensation is deferred. You receive that compensation if in the succeeding two years you actually produce zero or positive returns for your client. If you actually produce negative returns for your client, you reduce that deferred compensation or potentially lose all of it. So that is a very significant impact on how the manager takes risk. Now, there's a further interesting element in the ecosystem. You've heard of high watermarks. In the hedge fund industry, uh, firms use high watermarks. I don't like high watermarks. They do engender risk-taking. Because what happens in a high watermark is if you're down 5%, you have to earn the 5% back before you earn any money. That actually makes you a risk-taker. It makes you take too much risk. And if you actually don't earn the 5% in the second year, then you're really swinging for the fences because you're going to be – you, you won't have earned any money for two years. So we reset the performance every year, and we use this three-year averaging and the deferred compensation as a way to control risk. So it's a complicated ecosystem, yes, but I think we've actually addressed your concern. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You were talking about um, consolidation being a bad thing. It's funny you say that because earlier this year we broke that J.P. Morgan was among um, large banks that were looking to buy ETF companies. So, you know, with J.P. Morgan, with Goldman Sachs becoming massive ETF players now, is this a good thing or a bad thing for their business models? Well, my proposition is is that we need more passive investing vehicles, essentially, or or more passive providers. I don't like the fact, although I think it's going to be hard to change because passive is so benefited by scale, that uh, between, you know, the two large players, three large players, State Street, Vanguard, and and BlackRock, 
you have you know enormous concentration. And so you have operational risk in inside of those firms, which the market completely discounts. But there is real risk there. Having said that, investors will need to continue to have passive vehicles to allocate capital to. And everybody's portfolio should include a substantial amount of passive. And managers who are paid for performance, who actually produce performance, and then over the whole portfolio, managers or clients will actually get performance, which today they're not getting. Um, and so I, I think that J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, getting into the ETF business just provides for more diversification of the passive vehicles, and that's a good thing. Um, and let's talk about this. There needs to be more passive. So let me give you the numbers here. Right now, I think the fund industry is about $16 trillion. 35% of that is passively managed. Uh, the rest is active. Obviously, that swing from a pendulum 20 years ago where it was 99% active. Where is that pendulum going to stop, in your opinion, where they'll have a nice new equilibrium where active will be right-sized? 50 60% passive? Great question. Don't know the answer, uh, as you would, you would expect. Uh, that, that's a guess. But um, look, we know one of the reasons why I pushed very hard to try to change the revenue structure in the industry is that the existential question is that if managers were paid fixed fees, i.e. paid to try as opposed to paid to perform, over time, more and more money would leave the active industry and go into the passive industry. And what I was concerned about is that you didn't have a level playing field between active and passive. Fee structures in active were just materially higher than fee structures in passive and ETFs. So investors were saying, look, I don't get I don't get returns net of fees in the active space. I might as well just pay less fees and get the market return minus the fee. And if you if you looked out over a long period of time and said, well, philosophically, that means that people will just move from active to passive because they're not getting paid anything to be an active. In fact, their returns are less than what they would get in passive. Then you end up with a market that's 100% passive. And that, of course, theoretically is a disaster because now you don't have a capital market that actually prices. So I, I went down to Washington to talk to the SEC and I said – and the Treasury Department. And I said to them, look, you have a philosophical or fiduciary problem. Nobody wants the markets to be 100% passive because we won't be able to price an IPO, and that's a really bad thing. And this is the largest capital market in the world, and we need to be the most robust capital market in the world. So what you, you're not going to say as regulators, we're going to outlaw passive or you can't have more than X percent passive. That's not going to happen. But what you can do is create a level playing field so that competition allows investors to actually move money into vehicles that make sense to them. And that will create a balance in the market. And that was why I was pushing the regulators and, and Treasury to think about a structure where the base fee was this ETF-like fee. Then investors could say, look, I could have either active or passive at the same cost, but I have an option on the active managers performing. So to Eric's question, I think passive will continue to grow. It's at 35% today. I think it will easily get to 50. Whether it goes beyond 50 or 60, I don't know. My guess is that somewhere in the 50 to 60% level is kind of where it tops out. I think that uh, if you thought about, well, of your 16 trillion, could 8 trillion be uh, actively managed? You know, that's a question I, I don't know. But I do think in 10 to 15 years, there's going to be at least a trillion dollars managed by these performance structures. And, you know, the, the old industry isn't going to go away tomorrow. 
The old industry is going to remain for a long period of time. By the way, there are managers in the old industry that do perform, that do cap their capacity, but they're a very small number. Is it hard to recruit talent? You're pushing down fees across the board. Do people want and, to— And deferring compensation. And deferring compensation. You're telling people they are going to get paid less. So what is it like to recruit money managers? Well, I'm actually not telling people they're going to get paid less. I'm actually <laughs> telling people if they perform, they're going to get paid substantially more. Mm-hmm. Actually, substantially more. And we pay the managers 35% of the 30%. That's a significant improvement in the percentage of the revenues that they earn relative to industry standards. Let's focus on Aperture for a second. What products are you selling and how much are they going to cost? So I I can't focus on the specific products because, as you know, there's a registration process. But we do expect to have all of our products available in both registered investment vehicles, both in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, and perhaps in Asia over time, as well as separate accounts for institutions. So what we – our, our thesis is that we want these investing vehicles and these fees available to anybody who wants to be able to participate them. Anybody, meaning retail investor all the way to institutional investor. So does that mean mutual fund? Yes, that would mean mutual funds, 1940 Act advisor funds, uh, and USITS funds, which are mutual funds in Europe. And of course, they could be in different vehicles if we were in Asia. But for the time being, I think the U.S. and Europe is a very big market. Now, there's a couple, there's, I think, at least one ETF that has a fulcrum fee. Why not do this in the ETF structure? Is it because you don't want to show your holdings every day? Or do you specifically, because of what you talked about earlier, not like the trading aspect? Why a mutual fund? Because clearly, you know, people are all kind of thinking ETF right now. Wouldn't you want to be where the money's going? So it's a very interesting question, Eric. Very interesting question. I hope you're ready for the response. I'm <laughs> <laughs> ready. I'm braced. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> so um, along with the idea that I wanted to change the revenue structure of the market, I also think that the structure of the mutual fund and the pricing of the mutual fund, meaning NAV at the end of the day, is an anachronism. I mean, we have that structure because it's 70 years old, not because we would design it that way today. We can price a mutual fund all day long. What stops a mutual fund from being priced all day long like a security? Answer, nothing. Just the rules. So one of the things that I think the industry needs to do is to recognize that continuous pricing for mutual funds is actually very healthy for investors. If you continuously price mutual funds, what's the difference between a mutual fund and an ETF? Exactly nothing, except that in the mutual fund case, we actually are not disclosing the positions to the street and allowing the street potentially to disrupt the pricing value that the investor keeps because the securities are known only to the investor. So I think one of the things that has to happen in the next year or so is the SEC needs to examine, continue to examine, the possibility for continuously trading mutual funds. If you continuously traded mutual funds as a security that was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, you could tomorrow take $16 trillion and turn them into ETFs. The only difference being the tax treatment. Which is a biggie for a lot of people. So let's talk about the tax treatment. The capital gains, right. let's talk about the tax treatment. There is no reason on earth why ETFs should have deferred taxes and mutual funds should pay taxes every year. The only reason why it exists is that ETFs were dreamt up a long time after the IRS built the code. The fact that inside an ETF... Every uh, transaction is treated as a like-kind exchange is kind of a silly thing. He is shooting so many arrows at your fort right now. <laughs> Mutual funds should not pay taxes. I'm bleeding right now. You, you're <laughs> you're going to be de- you're going to be dead by the time I'm done. <laughs> but, 
Mutual funds should not pay taxes, and ETFs be, should avoid paying taxes. There should not be a subsidy running between mutual funds and ETFs. They both should be treated the same. Right. In other words, e- mutual funds are kind of double taxed. When you sell it, you get taxed, and you also get taxed for doing nothing. You're saying kill one of the taxes in the mutual fund to make it even with the ETF. To be precise, mutual funds are not double taxed. Mutual funds are taxed in two ways. You're not double taxed. You're taxed as gains and losses occur during the course of the year and distributions occur in the year. And then you are taxed with your adjusted basis relative to your sale value. The ETF, the same thing happens, but it's all deferred. So there is – it's a timing difference. It's actually not a permanent difference. It's a timing difference between when you pay the tax. But there's no earthly reason why the ETF should not pay that tax. If the IRS – wants to increase its revenues, which I would think they do, given that the government's going to post, I think, latest reading, $898 billion deficit, they ought to tax ETFs. And there's no reason why they shouldn't, other than the sort of silly rule that existed well before you created an ETF. Your fortress fell down. (laughs) Well, no, I actually completely understand that point of view from the mutual fund side. It's not fair. In fact, the tax efficiency of an ETF was a happy accident, as Kathleen Moriarty told us. They didn't mean to do that. It was just a nice byproduct. And it turns out that for some people, that's the number one benefit. For others, it's maybe two or three, but it certainly adds to this whole like basket of advantages that have, has helped the ETF. So, so, I, so I agree I've, with you. I've actually analyzed this in great detail because I'm act- I can actually tell. intellectually interested <laughs> in it. So the, the ETF is the greatest estate vehicle in the world. If you buy the ETF and die with it, it's a step up in basis. You never pay the tax. That's a terrific opportunity. The number of people that take advantage of that is less than 0.1%. ETF holding periods, you know, are within one to two years, maybe three years max. The, the benefit that that holder is getting is the net present value of the tax payments over that time period. At today's interest rates, it's de minimis. People think it's an attractive thing. It really doesn't pay that much. But it is a marketing pitch that ETF organizations use, a happy accident. It's nice to say to somebody, why don't you take advantage of the happy accident? The fact that mutual funds pay taxes, that's just the facts. That's fine. There's another interesting issue. If you force the ETF to actually pay taxes, their costs would actually go up because they'd actually have to account for the 1040 that gets gets sent to you each year. So there's also a cost differential. That's actually the thing that bothers me the most. It's not so much the taxes because the net present value is a small number. It's the fact that the mutual fund structure has to actually account for that taxation every year, send out information to their constituents, their mutual fund holders. They pay a tax. The ETF doesn't pay that. And then the ETF says, my fees are lower. But that's, that's what really bothers me. Yeah, and this, in Mike Tyson's punch out, you're the guy who's like dazed in the corner right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I, this there's is nothing all, wrong with ETFs. Yeah. I, I just think this is an inequality in the system that needs to be addressed. Listen, I call this the fighting spirit. On Twitter, I'm amazed at how few people are out there pushing back on this sort of raw, raw, passive thing. I like it. This is good debate. This is what people need. It's there. There aren't that many people on the active side who are fired up like this. It's it's odd. Uh, but I have one quick question though. In terms of your funds, right, you have equity, right? Let's say we talk about an equity fund. One thing that's coming up a lot lately is active share. So the amount of the portfolio that, say, isn't in the benchmark, how much unique exposure are you getting? Do you plan to have a high active share, which I assume you would if you're on a performance fee, and thus how would you use it in a portfolio as like a 10% add-on to a low-cost passive core? Or are you looking to sell funds that would have smaller active share that would be used as your complete core position? Yeah, great question. 
So what I love about this fee structure is the portfolio manager is emancipated. Literally, I'm paying them to perform. And so what you find with portfolio managers, and look, I've interviewed 100 portfolio managers over the last nine months and, and probably had three meetings each with them, so that's 300 interviews. What you find with portfolio managers is they all have styles. They all have – I don't mean styles like value growth. I mean investing styles. They have ways in which they take risk, ways in which they're comfortable taking risk. And you never before in a mutual fund could actually do what you said, which is have a small active position that was really all of your alpha, and then the rest of your portfolio was just an index. And the reason why you couldn't is because you were charging 65 basis points to the client. And the client would say, how can you have you know, 70% of your portfolio in an index? I could pay you know, 10 basis for that. We're changing that model entirely. You're paying us 10 basis points in a U.S. large cap portfolio. If we chose, if the portfolio manager chose to have a portion of that in an index, actually an index, or just replicate the index in a swap, you wouldn't be upset because you're not actually charging more, getting charged more for that than you would if you bought it outside the mutual fund. So portfolio managers are going to construct these portfolios in ways in which they're comfortable taking risk, which I think increases the probability that they actually create a return. Because you want portfolio managers to be able to manage portfolios in, with the least amount of constraints as possible. You lower the constraints, you increase the probability for performance. The people that are going to come and be portfolio managers at Aperture are people that actually believe they can perform. And I've, I've had a couple of debates with folks that are in the traditional industry. And they say, listen, some years people don't perform. You, know, you, you, you can't hold the talent. And I said, look, I don't want the talent that's in your company. Because the talent in your company is happy to get paid whether or not they perform. I actually want talent that wants to get paid when they perform. I'll pay them more. They'll be more focused on performance. And they're aligned with the client. And there's one last thing that's critical, which we haven't talked about. This whole active-passive debate is focused on capacity. Because you know that when you manage more and more dollars, it becomes more and more difficult to produce returns. If I pay you on performance you will cap your own capacity. That is a huge benefit, huge benefit. It's the biggest benefit that Aperture offers because if you don't have that, then the owner of the company, of the asset manager, and the portfolio manager are always fighting over, you know, who's got, you know, how much capacity is there really available in the industry. The portfolio manager will always say they can manage more money. And unfortunately, the asset manager themselves, the shareholders of those, of those companies – they're incentivized to grow the assets too. So this is the only company that I've seen so far where the owner, the equity, meaning me and, and generally, that both of us are incentivized to actually cap the capacity because we make money when the clients make money. And the same thing for the, for the portfolio manager. That's a key difference. So speaking of which, what do you view as going to be your, your ideal size? So I think the ideal size of the company, first of all, this is a company that I believe uh, will take eight to 10 years to get to, you know, the ideal size. I don't think you can build asset managers, you know, over a short period of time. Uh, we're committed to this business. We, generally and I are committed to this business over the long run. Uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to head two asset management organizations. In both cases, it took eight plus years to either stabilize them or grow them to scale. I don't really think this will be any different. Um, I think that we will have 10 to 15 managers over long periods of time, so over 10 years. You know, if we're lucky enough to have 
three to five billion dollars per manager. You know, you can do the math. Call it you know forty to fifty billion. We don't need to be a hundred billion dollar, or two hundred, or five hundred, or trillion dollar company. In fact, I think that you probably can't produce the alpha at that basis. I think what the industry needs is lots of apertures out there,、uh, and in that way, I think that people can control their capacity. They can be specific alpha generating engines, and they can produce for the investor a much better environment over time. Your investors interesting. You have a lar- one of the largest, you know, insurers in the world. Generali is one of the largest in- Italian insurer that's also been looking to expand their asset management base. Why an insurance company? To build an asset manager, you need two things. One is far more important than the other. You need a little bit of capital to run the business. So this company has about forty million dollars of initial capitalization between myself and Generali. That's interesting, but not very. What's really interesting is the seed capital. Because what drives portfolio managers to actually come to a company is, I can start you off with a sizable amount of capital, and that means if you perform, you actually can get paid a reasonable amount of money. What does an insurance company have that most other entities don't have? They have very long duration liabilities. You know, people live for long periods of time. Their insurance premiums. Are paid over long periods of time. Insurance company balance sheets have these very long duration liabilities, which means that they can invest over long periods of time. So, an insurance company is the perfect balance sheet to actually provide seed capital. And what you need is an innovative insurance company who's willing to understand that building the asset manager might, in fact, be cheaper and more attractive over time than buying it. Most have bought them. I have bought lots of asset managers. I have sold lots of asset managers. It's very difficult to buy an asset manager. All kinds of issues plague you, and you have to pay for the fair value of the asset, which means that in order to get your money back, it has to grow faster than it's currently growing, and that's not an easy thing to do, particularly in today's market. So I think what Generali's insight、uh, was that while this is an innovative, disruptive model, we are an innovative and disruptive company. Fits with what we want to do, and we have the long duration liability that actually could fund it. So that's how it came together. When we talk active, like your funds and the managers you're hiring, a huge trend right now is quantitative active, which is actually not a, a human making decisions per se, but a system that humans used converted into an index. We call it smart beta. Are you going to use any of that, or are you going to have? Are you going to be more quote like old school, where you're discretionary active? You can decide what to do on any given day. Is that the kind of active you're going to sell, or you're going to maybe have a merger of two? Very good question, Eric. You have very good questions. I must <laughs> say, really, really. I'm、do. I'm way steep in this stuff. No, no, you're、yeah. very good.、Um, so I've managed quantitative managers over time,、um, built quantitative systems. What's interesting about quantitative systems, and you alluded to this, is that they are actually just、um, disciplined. And、um, mechanized human research processes, and so they aren't that different than what a human does. They're just routinized, and they presumably exclude human biases in making decisions. I say presumably because that's actually not true. Because the research factors that actually drive them have embedded in them some bias to begin with. The challenge with、uh, with the quantitative system is they have a very hard time seeing inflection points, and so if you actually run a quantitative model, the quantitative model will say, even though it lost money yesterday, that today it's going to make money and it continues to actually execute the way it was 
the past day. It's hard for that quantitative model to actually see an inflection point and change. And that's the biggest risk in quant models in the world. Then they're all basically the same one form or another. So sometimes some of the engineers of the quant models actually can see the inflection points and change the model. And so effectively, they inject into the process a human element that wasn't really supposed to be there. And, oft- and oftentimes, they don't get it right, but sometimes they, get it, they do get it right. And that's what makes some of these you know, unique quantitative models more successful versus others. I think that's interesting, uh, but my own view of the world is that um, the quantitative models are more likely to not see the inflection point and take on too much money over time because the quantitative model also doesn't have a capacity, you know, instinct. It's just a, it's just a machine. It just keeps trading. So I've concluded that uh, I think the human actually, on balance, has more to offer than the machine. Wow, that is controversial. <laughs> yes. I like him. He's going after passive and quants. I like it. That's, this is, you're taking on two huge trends. There's a whole discussion about artificial intelligence that AI you know, effectively will trump human thinking. And look, that may be true 50 years from now. It is not true today. And so if you wanted to build an investment management company on uh, AI-driven quantitative investing, I don't think that that's in the cards right now. It, it's funny how, you know, all this movement into passive and quant and the news flow, how original saying a human, be- <laughs> a human being Drop in a mutual mic. fund, it's like, wow, how novel. <laughs> Chanelle Bazic, Peter Krauss, your church is called Aperture Investors. Thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you would like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. Shanali's at at S-O-N-A-L-I-B-A-S-A-K. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. How does Invesco QQQ rethink possibility? By rethinking access to innovation and the NASDAQ 100. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.